Welcome to Black Feminist Rants, where we center conversations on reproductive justice and activism. I am your host, Lakia Williams, and let's begin. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Happy Black History Month and welcome back to the Black Youth Sexuality mini-series. In this series, we will be discussing the various topics surrounding sexuality, reproductive justice, and liberation as experienced and imagined by Black youth. In this episode, we will be talking to Danielle Jenkins. Danielle discusses the lack of representation of asexual Black youth. Thank you so much to the Epping Foundation and Advocates for Youth for sponsoring this season. Okay, great. Hello, Danielle. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Black Feminist Rants and for being a Black youth sexuality storyteller. To start us off, can you introduce yourself with your name, your pronouns, and a few words about yourself? Yeah. So, hello. My name is Danielle Jenkins. My friends call me Danielle, Danny, or DJ. I use they, she pronouns. And a couple words I guess I could use about myself. I'm a, I'm a twin sister. I'm a daughter. I'm a friend. I'm a cat mom. I'm a lifelong learner. I'm a foodie. I'm a movie buff. I'm a bit of a nerd through and through. So those are some of the words that I think really touch the main parts, the important parts. I love that you came in with like actual descriptors of yourself and like a lot of them as well. I feel like a lot of people just like say their title, but you're like, no, this is me, all the things. Yeah. Uh, So thank you for bringing that into this space. One thing that we like to say in the reproductive justice movement is that we all have a story to tell and that really reminds us to center our lived experience in the work that we're doing. So I was wondering if you have a part of your reproductive justice story that you would like to share. Yeah, so I will say that for me, I um, recently got the chance to go organize a protest with my friend. I'm from the state of New Jersey, so, you know, I make a joke all the time, like, I'm, like, besties with, like, the governor, Phil Murphy, so, like, I call him, like, good old Phil. But, like, he's doing a great job with, like, making sure that people's rights to go do what they need to do with their own body and understanding that abortion is healthcare and that is all there is to it is protected in the New Jersey state constitution. But I also understand the dichotomy of having your reproductive rights protected and guaranteed and viewed as something of importance in one state and then just simply moving a couple thousand miles away in the same country and having all of those things be in jeopardy and kind of put to question as a student that lives in Atlanta for a good chunk of the year. So I organized a protest in New Jersey because I one realized that with the you know the supreme court basically telling states that yeah it's up to you what you want to let people do in your own parameters that one a lot of people will end up going to different states for like extended stay vacations if you would just to you know get the access to the health care that they need because it's illegal where they live at so we were organizing a protest to one just vocalized just what we were upset about we view this as an injustice but also to just like raise money which was like a very odd thing we weren't expecting like anyone to show up and a couple hundred people did and it was very just like unexpected and very just like oh god like people showed up and they cared and it was interesting the type of folks that showed up too but you know nonetheless we were able to raise some money we were able to go give it to some travel funds for people seeking out abortion so that was really 
important work that I realized that literally just a exchange of a text conversation between me and a friend about how disturbed we were by the Supreme Court decision became real action and we actually got to give money to the thing that matters that was like huge for me so but I've always been really passionate about justice in a general sense but particularly reproductive justice because one of the things that like boggles my mind is the fact that things that are obviously health care things that are like fact not to be debated <laughs> are like up for like debate and like interpretation and I'm just a big believer in like there are like many things that we could debate about right like I like pineapple on pizza you don't have to like pineapple on pizza that's something that's a debate what's not a debate is like is a fetus the same thing as a baby that's not a debate because we know that to be different so I'm really invested in us telling the truth and then also like not making bad faith arguments when it comes to healthcare for an entire half of the world. Definitely. And I'm glad that you brought up the point of, you know, you can be in one state and have access to abortion care and healthcare generally, and then go to another state and not have that access. I'm currently living in California, which is known as a reproductive freedom state, but I went to undergrad in Louisiana and I'm from Texas, which are two states that do not have abortion access. And we've actually seen at California Statewide Abortion Fund access reproductive justice. There's been a very large increase in callers who are coming from out of state, places like Texas, to get abortion care because they can't get it in their states. And that obviously poses a big barrier for many people. So that's amazing that you were doing that work, organizing a protest as a young person with your friends. And also, I know we talk about like doing actions in states where things are hostile, but I also see some futility in doing protests in states where there may be more access because it reminds people that this is a privilege that you have and we still need to show up for people that don't have this access and we still need to, you know, just be showing up and supporting and donating to abortion funds and other organizations that are supporting people access care, whether that's abortion care or some other form of care as well. Yeah, no, for sure. I think it's really important because I was also seeing like, you know, Twitter, Twitter is just whole thing now the way that elon is running it but that's a completely different conversation but like some of the things that i like saw on twitter were just like also like made my skin crawl with just like well y'all be easy over there where it's like it's not a matter of over there we all need to be concerned and invested in the fact that all of our rights are up for debate. All of our rights are just depending on who your governor happens to be, depending on who your state state representative is, your state senator. All of these things are just completely at the will of the people that you elect to go represent you. So it's not just about, oh, I live within the confines of like New Jersey. So that's really that all I, I should care about. Yeah, sure. Like these things are my priority as they immediately affect me. But also I don't think it's smart and it's not, I um, I believe in like centering just like humans at the end of the day when it comes to law. So it's like one, it's just not smart to divorce yourself from what's going on in the other 49 states and territories. But also it denies humanity to the other people that live in those states and territories, regardless of if you know anyone or not. It's it, just because I have 
we all need to have access to this type of health care. It's not okay that because they have a Republican governor or they have this type of conservative or evangelical representatives in their state Senate and House of Representatives that therefore they don't have access to this type of health care. So it should be of concern to all of us. Definitely. And I love that you brought up the point of how some people in states where they may have access and they may have, you know, a Democratic governor that is supportive of abortion access or even just issues that are social justice related in general will kind of speak about people in the South or in places where it is more hostile as disposable than like, oh, well, you know, this state didn't vote the way that I think they should have voted. So like all the people in the state are just disposable when people in the South compromise a large portion of our black population and our indigenous population. So that's really just saying that we're disposing of those people. And I feel like how you said it kind of negates at the humanity of people. And there's a lot of organizing historically and currently that's happening in the South in states where they may be red or they may be purple states. And that doesn't negate the work that people on the ground are doing. I mean, it's more of an emphasis on the lacks, the how the system works and operates and where the power Power is distributed so there might be more power in the hands of the people in states like california versus in states like texas and so that's not to say that the people in texas or in people in states that are hostile don't deserve access or care or support from people in more quote-unquote friendly states right but i'm actually i didn't even expect us to go on the whole abortion access um a conversation i'm glad that you brought that up i know that we need to keep that in the forefront of our conversations especially since especially mm-hmm. this year with the fall of roe v wade but i actually wanted to talk to you about asexuality and the spectrum and some of the things that we talked about about in our pre-interview yeah i'm really excited to go talk about these things it's i think it's really interesting to go talk about i personally don't know many other ace people particularly not that many black ace people but i'm always like willing to go be not necessarily i guess a a good representative is like a really rough way of going to say it but you know i feel like i can go give some some gems some some things to go talk about Yes, and you are definitely not here to be a representative for all Black ace people. (laughs) Um, But as you said, you don't know personally many Black ace people, and I feel like most Black people don't know um, other asexual people, whether they are Black or non-Black. So I think this is a really great opportunity for people to learn more about the diversity within sexuality and gender. I'm happy to have you on and to talk about that a little bit. So you mentioned that you talked about being on the asexual spectrum. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what it means to be asexual and how how it can be uh, or how it is a spectrum. So for me, like if you look up asexuality, like you will get the Merriam-Webster rough definition of like, it's like the lack of sexuality. And that's like not really all encompassing of what the ace umbrella is in the same way that like queerness is an umbrella and that encompasses many different identities and many different expressions of those identities that are not the same for one another and those words are like not necessarily interchangeable even though we all fit under this umbrella. So I would personally just describe asexuality as feeling feeling sexual urges and relating to wanting to have sexual relationships in a way that deviates from the norm. So it's not necessarily all about just the lack it could be just like very little there are some ace people that do have desires to go have sex or sexual urges but also they like might not necessarily feel it as much as a non-ace person would so it's like there's a range even within the ace community just about like it could go from like you 
are asexual and you might not have any desire to go pursue any romantic partnership or you could be asexual and you could be having sex but you're having sex for not necessarily like oh yeah like this is i'm i want pleasure out of this it's like okay i feel close to my partner because of this so this is why i am having sex it's like completely different motivations i think it's also important to know asexuality is not celibacy or like uh waiting for marriage or anything like that those are like individual choices which are also totally cool wonderful but that's like not asexuality because it's just making the individual choice and i believe I guess choosing to go not act on urges is very different than like the urge not existing or feeling different in the first place. So that's also a really important part. Both are totally cool, valid, but they're not the same thing. Yes, that's a good point. It would be a little interesting if someone was like, oh, I'm asexual. And then they were just like, yeah, I'm just waiting for marriage. Like that's not yeah, and it's like, the exact same thing. <laughs> yep. I see where you were trying to go, but yep. So thank you for that description. Oh, and I, I didn't realize that, like I knew asexual people still could have sexual desires, but kind of like the motivation piece behind it, that was something that I learned. So thank you for sharing that. And there was something interesting that you shared in our pre-interview that I wanted to talk a little bit about. You said, as a Spelman student, you feel a deep affinity for black womanhood, but generally uh, gender roles are boring and not encompassing. So I would love to hear about the fluidity of your identity as a woman and what that looks like for you. Yeah, I like to say all the time that like I will always be a black woman but like a woman I'm kind of like a woman with like an asterisk at the end of the word like with like a question mark like I feel like I will always be somebody's sister somebody's daughter somebody's niece but I'm like eh, you know this woman thing eh, you know sure like it's okay whatever but I just think that gender is boring in the sense that it lacks any imagination and it tells us what we have to be and what we have to do and we can only live within this confine of the box of women are submissive and they're docile and when we we and already that we understand that like this is a social category but it gets even more interesting when we talk about modes of black womanhood and white womanhood and how those are also different roles and performances once again about black womanhood is characterized to be in a very different way than white womanhood is so when we start thinking about just like how fake these things are and just how not encompassing these things are and also just how i think we all exist with like sometimes we need to go be assertive and dominant and also sometimes we need to go be lax and submissive and docile or whatever those things are i don't think those are attributed to gender as much as it is your own personality and that's what i think is really important and i feel like when i say i am a man so i must perform and act in this way and it doesn't come naturally to you those are not the things that you are as a person i think it's a disservice as a as a descriptor for those things like i think you are much better describing yourself as like oh i'm like a person that like likes movies or like you know i'm like really sensitive and emotional and those things are like not necessarily determined by like your genitals it's just it's just very just not imaginative very uncreative just so so you know i think being a black woman means a lot to me in the sense that at Spelman College, my black womanhood is definitely uplifted. And I understand that to a certain degree, I will always be seen as a black woman. So like a part of me is like, I don't know if this is, I feel an affinity because I also understand that this is something I will never escape. So, but I also believe that black women are the bomb.com. Black women are my personal heroes. Learning more about 
what black women have fought for over the years, what we have done, what we have created, how we love, all those things have nurtured me and made me into a better, more complete person. The way that I am, I owe my life to a black woman, my friends, my deepest community, the people that care and love for me the most are black women. So I will always feel a deep affinity and love for black womanhood. But I feel like womanhood, to me at least, it like feels like a different category, womanhood in a general sense, but black womanhood, black femininity feels different to me. I 100% agree and I feel like you've put words to something that I felt for a while like you brought up like black womanhood as a sense of community and that being at the forefront and I feel like that's some that's a reason that I feel so strong in my womanhood is because specifically I'm a black woman in that community I have around myself but when we talk about all the other things that is a quote unquote makes up womanhood a lot of that is just built in oppression and misogyny and like obviously people most people wouldn't want to identify with their means of oppression. Some people do, and that's typically because they are very deep in their oppression, which is very sad. But yeah, I really like that you named like the community aspect of Black womanhood and just like how Black women show up for each other. And then also the piece of like how you may always be perceived as a Black woman and how that's going to impact how you are treated in society and just having affinity for other people who also have that experience. Right. I think these are things that I can't escape from. And I also think like going to Spelman, I have like not been like loved and nurtured like this before, like in life. So like, you know, it's just it's just a completely like I can't imagine like not being in love with like the black girlhood, black womanhood, black girl magic, all of those things. And I owe a huge part of that to like Spelman making me both feel like comfortable with exploring and understanding that I exist so much more outside of the bubble of women but also like I love being a black woman so like it's given me both those things which is like very odd considering that it is a woman's college and you know you would assume that it would be very strict and having to teach you like you fit in this box and you do not escape this box but that has not been my Spelman experience so I love that. I was just talking to a friend about Anaya, who is a Spelman student, who's a production manager on the podcast. Love Anaya. That is my yes. girl. Shout out to <laughs> I love Anaya. Yes, a fan favorite. And I was saying how, you know, Anaya speaks so highly of Spellman as a non-binary person too, at a, you know, women's college. And then they were talking, my friend was talking about another person they know at Spellman who loves Spellman. And obviously like, no college is going to be perfect and there's going to be issues but i've just heard so many good things about spellman i don't think i've heard anyone ever talk badly about spellman and probably the like half a dozen people i know who went to spellman are all like some of the best people that i know so i feel like that speaks very highly of the college and of the people who go to the college yes thank you very much first of all i just feel i call it a little cult like the spell mafia and the indoctrination but honestly i am so happy to go be a part of the cult i know everyone makes little jokes about like you guys are just with your little ceremonies and whatnot i am very happy to go be there and in indulge in the ceremonies and all those things because i don't you know spellman like any other place in the world has its issues and things to go work on but also, there is no other place on the planet like Spelman College. And you will not experience the love and community as you will at 350 Spelman Lake. So with all those things considered, you know, 
if I have to like go suffer through like college and like the up all night and being so stressed out and figuring out what I'm gonna do, I would much rather do that in a community of black women and in a community of my sisters who want to see the best for me, who are pouring into me and I'm pouring into them and are we are exchanging so much love and belief in each other's amazingness than like thugging it out at a PWI. So, <laughs> you know, I, if I had to pick, I'd pick Spellman a hundred times over again. Not this turning into a Spellman promo episode. <laughs> it is. But it I is. love it. And if you're listening and you are non-binary or you don't identify as a woman and you're considering Spellman, obviously great things to be said. So definitely consider Spellman College. But I did want to ask you also, Danielle, you talked about gender being very boring. And so I was wondering how does gender limit self-expression in your opinion? So I think one of the things that's like really interesting now is this conversation around queer baiting. I think like the conversation around it to me kind of informs the ways in which we view gender performance and like it's like come we've gone so far that we've come back around is how yes when you go so far left you end up back on the right yes yeah it's like I've I've truly now to me once again Danielle's hot takes, whatever you want to call it. I'm not saying anyone has to agree with me. But, but to me, I think the important part of making queer if like queer representation and seeing queer people and like all these things is to also liberate people that consider themselves to be cisgender, heterosexual, heteromantic, whatever may have you, to also see that they can be and do different things, that they don't have to go live in this bubble of just this is how I need to go be because I am a straight person, because I am a heterosexual person. Because I thought we all understood that that was a harmful thing. I thought we all understood that this is not the way to go live life. It's very limiting. It's putting blinders on when there's a whole other worldview out there when you really just think about how silly these roles are, how made up and fictional these things are. But now with like conversations around queer baiting, I've seen people talk about like Bad Bunny and Harry Styles about like, why are they wearing nail polish? They're queer baiting. Why are they wearing this dress? It's like they're queer baiting because they're wearing a dress. They're they're presumably straight men wearing a dress. And it's very, I don't know, it's odd to me because we've, we've, we understood, we've had several conversations about a dress is a piece of fabric, like pants and suits are just pieces of fabric. Pieces of fabric do not have gender. They do not inform gender. They do not tell us what a person identifies as. We understand that, you know, pronouns are, do also do not equal gender. We understand gender is a fluid thing. But yet somehow, while we understand that gender, gender expression are fluid and it could be whatever you want it to be, it also is like telling when we say to like, cishet people that this is queer baiting because x y and z thing i believe queer baiting exists but i don't think queer baiting like a real person existing dressing up living their day-to-day lives i don't i don't really see how that's queer baiting so i don't really know how we how we got to you know everything it's a piece of fabric we wear what we want this is we understand that this is oppressive to go tell people that you need to go perform this way and look this way because this is what your sexuality and gender role tell us that you need to look and perform like to like cishet men can't wear dresses because it's queer baiting i don't see how we how we can hold both of those things at once so to me 
I fear we're getting into some territory that I think we need to like just analyze just like what are we saying when we're when we're saying that by virtue of you putting on nail polish and dresses what are we saying when we're when we you're queer baiting it is so interesting that you brought up queer baiting and I feel like this should be like its own podcast episode by itself but I, I love how you brought up you know we go so far left that we end up coming back to the right so this whole idea of queer baiting it's interesting because what we see in the heteropatriarchy is that people have to perform their gender right so we have the gender binary and if you don't perform your gender in the correct way then you deviate from that and then you that is an issue right but then we extend that into queerness and queerness should not, it should be the antithesis of heteropatriarchy, right? It should be liberation. People should be able to express themselves. So it's not only about, you know, who you're having sex with, but it's also about just having freedom of self-expression and just being who you are. But if we're also going to police the gender expression of queer people, have we not just recreated a different form of heteropatriarchy? Like, are we not just recreating the system again? And I also feel like that can like tiptoe into biphobia as well. And I see a lot of queer baiting conversations on TikTok and TikTok in my opinion is the most biphobic platform there is well maybe maybe twitter's up there too i don't spend a lot of time on twitter so i can't speak on that but there's a lot of biphobia on tiktok and it's very popular which is very interesting and i feel like queer baiting feeds into that as well this whole this concept of queer baiting people will if they, especially if they're bi if they're pan they will cycle through and their relationships will look different at different points and that doesn't negate their queerness or their bi identity and i feel like this critiquing of expression is something that we've learned from the oppressor that we've adopted that is going to like prevent us from ever being free because like you said we can't we can't police people on how they present because it doesn't look how we think they should present now i do understand in the terms of very large entities that are a brand right so a lot of performers are they're their own brands and they make money off of that and they can get accolades and whatever so if there's someone who's quote-unquote queer baiting and they're winning awards for queer people i don't even know if that exists anyways that could be an issue or saying they're getting opportunities because of their queer identity that could be an issue but in the grand scheme of things queer people are still being oppressed as performers whether that's in music or in acting and so i don't really see how someone making up a queer identity is going to propel them in the ways that people think it will and i feel like that also comes from a space of thinking that people who are marginalized get more opportunities like this affirmative action like this myth around it and that's also another part of like that's problematic like yes people shouldn't queer bait but the backlash that we get from people thinking someone's queer baiting is coming from this idea that doesn't exist. People who are queer aren't getting all of these amazing opportunities that straight people aren't getting that we have to be fearful of. Like people are still very much so at risk. People are still definitely trafficking in rhetoric that paints queer people and trans folks as pedophiles and a danger to society. This is not something that it's like, oh, it's in to go be queer because many more people are coming out as queer or gay or bi or whatever you may you may have it. I also agree about TikTok. I think TikTok is the place where critical thinking goes to die. And the issue that I think is like really like boggling to the mind with TikTok is that TikTok is like 2010s, early 2010s Tumblr but on steroids and with like less shame in the sense that it is your like face. Like you are telling me and I know like your face and you are talking to me and you're using your real name and people like know you and are aware of you and you know, know that you exist outside of this like TikTok bubble. So there's like so much more immediate consequence to like these like nasty, vitriolic, not super smart takes that people think that they're making. And it's like, and I, I see your face. Like I, I, 
you exist as a person and that is something that i can like perceive and other people perceive you in real life and your face is right there as you're making this very nasty bigoted take it's it's quite i i don't know i don't know i can't say that i understand it <laughs> i do agree I, I think that while i do have my complaints about tiktok or my critiques i do think that it allows for accountability in the ways that we've never really seen on social media before so even when i brought up by phobia on tiktok i'm thinking of someone very specifically i mean it was probably a couple months or maybe even a year ago a creator called book hoarder I don't know if they've deleted their account since, but very nasty biphobic remarks. And it was interesting because they were trying to get to a point that was valid, but their means of getting there was rooted in biphobia. And so like that was the issue, but they had to delete their account for a little bit. They had to go on hiatus. Like things happen because like you said, your face is attached to your profile in ways that Tumblr, there's really going to be no backlash other than like deleting your account for a little bit or same with Twitter. Like people aren't held accountable. So at least people have to hopefully be a little bit more conscious about the things that they're saying and how they're saying them on social media. Yeah, TikTok is such like an interesting place. I remember like seeing a TikTok where it was a light-skinned woman talking about like, you know, why do we people wear makeup or like, you know, dress up in a certain way and she was, you know, using rhetoric such as like I believe the term that she used was like decorating your cages or decorating your like prisons. I know who you're talking about. <laughs> Kiara Bro, the yeah. dancer. That's so funny. And I was like, yeah and she used to pop up like on my like you know for you page. is it for you yeah for you page <laughs> yeah the for you page and like constantly and i was like i i just want to like have a little giggle on this app i don't really need to go be lectured and given theory in, in 30 seconds or less so i'm like scrolling through but i was like it's so interesting to me that that's like something that like you can say as a light-skinned woman mm -hmm. and then like it's like this is the truth for all women yeah we all exist in the same way and we are all perceived in the same way because we understand i don't understand how we can all understand that womanhood is a performance black woman white woman asian woman and the ways that you look and the differences even within those groups are perceived differently and the expectations are different and then you can make this blanket statement and say that it's applicable to all women and femmes yeah these things can't exist at the same time they can't mm -hmm. they're in they're in direct contradiction they're in direct conflict with one another and i just remember like seeing that go viral and like she was she was getting beat up she was getting beat up in the quotes but like still it was it was it was so fascinating it was just and you said that and you were like this is this is the truth for yeah. all women everywhere yeah this could also be a whole nother episode just talking about social media takes but yeah i think that comes from like a place of not being able to acknowledge your privilege or and i feel like she knows to acknowledge her privilege i think maybe forgot to or just like forgot how it works because yeah you can't make blanketed statements about something especially when you have a privileged identity within that group that you're speaking about so yes very interesting i do i do see this trend of like tiktokers like getting a lot of growth and getting a lot of positive feedback and kind of forgetting that they can also be wrong and maybe to sit with their thoughts and refine them and learn more before they speak on issues yeah and that's okay i think that's important sometimes just like the power of silence and the, and <laughs> the 
sometimes you just, I don't want you to like go tell me okay what is the, what are your thoughts on this like thing that you've never thought about before in like 30 seconds after I've asked you a question right. I would like for you to go be considerate about it and think about things like you don't have to go give a response and commentary and you don't know what you're talking about it's okay we all don't know things but like you have to be okay with not knowing things that's important and I I don't think I don't think also social media makes it okay to like not know things and I, but that's like a that's a once again a completely different podcast episode but yes it's okay to not know things it mm-hmm. really is and like the rat race of like especially TikTok you have to create so much content consistently that I feel like people exhaust more of their like expertise quote expertise quote unquote that they just like move into other spaces that they're not as knowledgeable about and then that's when they get in trouble because they don't you know, it's it's easy to not do as much research when it's something that you're well researched on already. And so you think, oh, I didn't have to research for this video. It's like, well, yeah, because you've done a lot of research in the past, but this new topic you don't know about, you didn't do your research and now it's an issue. Okay, enough about TikTok, enough about social media. Uh, <laughs> and then after this interview, I'm probably gonna go and scroll on TikTok for a little bit. That's okay, that's okay, that's okay. Oh my gosh. Okay, so I wanted to ask you, cause you shared this in your pre-interview as well. You shared that you feel that the reproductive justice movement pushes out ace people can you speak to your experience with that i would say that it pushes out ace people in the same way that i feel reproductive justice conversations are incomplete when we don't talk about trans men and non-binary people so i think like it's very easy to go say that this is like the lar the the main demographic and the people who exist in the center of this like larger issue but like in all struggle movements as we have seen there are many identities that share one identity but there are also other identities within that little identity group and there are people that exist further on the margins than people on the center and some those people in my opinion are trans men non-binary folks and ace people in, in the sense that because asexuality is seen as this thing that is a complete lack of sexuality and by and large i think a lot of people assume that ace ace people do have no desire for romantic partnership and once again that is some ace people but it's also it's not all ace people so there are ace people that have kids there are ace people that do have sex for different motivations there are ace people that want kids so they will have sex to go have kids but like with all that being said Reproductive justice also impacts us too, as people that if you want kids or you have or you don't want kids in the future, we are still a part of these conversations. And once again, if we understand that abortion is healthcare, birth control is healthcare, all of these things, we also have to be willing to like expand the fact that like, okay, this is like for other reasons, people need abortions. For other reasons, people need access to proper birth control. So it's not just like what is the popular narrative of like okay this is why this thing exists in a general sense but like people need things for different for different reasons and that's okay that's all right it's okay to just it broaden your horizons and begin to imagine of well what other use is abortion for what other use is for a birth control pill for like besides family planning what other reasons are people on it and why is it still important to go fight for these reasons and this access even if this original reason is is not their reason 
That's a great point. And I think just speaking of reproductive health in general, ace people can get lost in that conversation because like you said, people aren't considering that ace people may have sex and may want to have children and will need access. And even if even outside of sex, we'll just need access to reproductive health care in general. So that's a good point. And then also, furthermore, with the reproductive justice specifically, the fourth tenet of reproductive justice is the right to bodily autonomy. So people, regardless of their reproductive organs and whatever, if they're having sex or not having sex, deserve the right to bodily autonomy. And that needs to be incorporated in the discussions that we're having around reproductive justice. And so how would you like the reproductive justice movement to incorporate more ace identities into its organizing and advocacy efforts? I would say that first and foremost, I think the language that we use is really important. So I would say like, I'm a big believer in like her body, her choice, but even something as simple as like changing it to their body, their choice, you know, like it's, it really is something as simple as like making sure that this is inclusive of all different types of people understanding that people may want families that are like not necessarily like have sexual urges in the same way that non-ace people do but they still want to have families so family planning is important to them so having access to abortions having access to birth control is important for a person that would like a family so just in once again just thinking about that there there are there's more than one reason why this thing exists there's more than one reason why people need this thing so understanding all the different desires for that makes abortion so important that makes birth control access so important i think is just the main thing that can broaden the conversation and i feel like once again changing the language to just a little bit more expansive is is all we need we're, we're doing good we're doing good we're at least having these conversations now i think in a way that probably couldn't happen a couple decades ago but we can always do better and i feel like those are ways that we can do better it's just expanding our language trying to imagine hey what are some other needs that abortion is meeting what are some other needs that birth control access is meeting definitely i will say her body her choice is so outdated i think what people are using now is my body my choice which is a, is, a, is a lot better than using her. But I definitely hear you on, we need to like be having these conversations more. And like, instead of just saying like reproductive justice isn't just a cis issue, like talk about how it's not a cis issue. Talk about ace people. Cause I've never, I've been like, I'm on social media all the time. I'm looking at people's posts. I'm looking at people's webinars. And I don't think I've ever seen anything about ace people specifically. And so people aren't gonna know, people don't even know that ace people do have sexual desires and may have sex. So that's one piece of education, but also so talking about it within abortion access and within reproductive health access and within reproductive justice in general is really important. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just, I'm happy to go be able to go interject in that conversation and say, don't forget the ace people. But like, you know, it's just, it's just important to just, hey, we're here too. We're here too. Trying to, trying to fight for the same rights because we need access to this thing too. So yeah. Yeah, and I think for, I've always seen the reproductive justice movement as a means of liberation for all people, but I think that can't happen until we actively are including all people and not expecting them to like speak up and say, hey, this also matters to me because X, Y, and Z, like we should be doing that on the on the front end. And then maybe they can provide more education that people who don't have the lived experience may not know, but at the very minimum, we should be like incorporating all identities into the movement as well. Yeah, I think all liberation work is rooted in imagination imagination and like you know having the desire or at least 
the belief that the world can be a better place and we can do different things and include more people and be more inclusive and the reproductive justice movement is not exempt from that conversation so just using our imaginations of like what do we think the world can look like and who can we make sure to go include so that everybody feels that they can go take part in this conversation because it doesn't just concern this demographic of people it is of concern to all of us is I think just like a part of all liberation work and that is at the forefront it should be at least at the forefront of reproductive justice conversations and movements definitely so my last question is that a lot of times when we think about black identity at the intersection of other marginalized identities it is very negative but I wanted to know what about your identity and your journey with gender and sexuality has brought you joy ah uh, so many things so uh, I love my friends very deeply and I believe that like having these conversations with the, me learning that like I exist somewhere on the asexuality spectrum, me coming into my own gender identity as a non-binary person who's also like I'm a, like a woman and then yeah if you want to if you want to say that like ah, okay I'm a woman but like in, in coming into those things and see just like the people that care and love for me already before I knew those things just like open themselves and be like yeah okay this is Danielle this is Danny this is the Danny we knew before nothing has changed now they've learned something else about them good for them so I think that's like one of the beautiful things because I think oftentimes people of color I wrote a paper this is like related unrelated but I wrote a paper my junior year about like homophobia and like the the attacks on queer rights in Eastern Europe because I often think that like the people that are oftentimes portrayed as like you know perpetrating these like masculine ideals and these modes of oppression and like you know homophobia transphobia are third world peoples who are people of color and the thing is that we a lot of times the interrogation is not about like these people propagate homophobia and transphobia but nobody really ever seems to ask the question of like okay so, but like where did these ideas like come from like where where did this indoctrination come from and it's not just like black people are more prone to being homophobic by virtue of us being black that's not how that works so just seeing black people love me, care for me when I'm learning and discovering these things and I'm experimenting with different pronouns and like the way that I want to use them. I was like, I think I like this more than that. And I think I want to experiment and express in this way more than that. And just being accepting of me, learning things and being quick to just change and understand that, okay, you want to use this, this is the order and the way of pro, uh, your pronouns are of like ranked in importance to you. These are the pronouns you want me to use for you. Cool. Save and less. So like just seeing that, being embraced, being loved by both my queer friends and non-queer friends alike has been, I think, the best part. And the best part about all of it is that by and large, they're majority black and brown people. So, <laughs> so, you know, fighting that narrative that we as like communities, we have tons of homophobia and transphobia to go work out, but it's not impossible that we can't unlearn these things. And it's not impossible that we can't exist with like queer and trans people out and in the open and not being referred to it by like these like euphemistic labels like sugar in the tank. Like we can exist with these people out and about and proud and loved and cherished by their communities. 
I love that we started the episode talking about community and then we ended it also talking about community. And I'm not surprised at all that what brings you joy the most is community and having a very solid community that supports you and loves you. And I'm really happy that you have that too. Thank you. Thank you. I am too. I'm eternally grateful for the people that love and care for me because I understand not everybody is privileged to have that. But like, I love my friends, love my family. And yeah, I think community is super important, particularly because you can tell the difference between when you have a good community behind you and when you have a not so great one behind you. So it, it is everything. And I think, you know, I don't really believe in anyone being an island by themselves. I think we all need somebody not to be like cheesy, but like, that's like, I think the reality, I think like safety wise, mentally, I don't think we're meant to go be alone by ourselves or exist and go be alone. So community is everything, everything. Definitely. Thank you so much for being on the podcast and for being a Black youth sexuality storyteller and just for all the work that you do. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was so much fun. Thank y'all so much for tuning into this episode and for supporting Black Feminist Rants and supporting the Black Youth Sexuality Series. Thank you so much to the Black Youth Storytellers for sharing your wisdom with us. I am constantly in awe at how amazing these people are. Some of them are younger than me. Some of them are my contemporaries. I just have such a good time talking to them and just being in community with other young Black people. And when we talk about Black History Month, we're also talking about Black futures and this is the future. And if this is the future, we're in such good hands. So thank y'all so much for supporting. If you enjoyed having Black youth speak about their experience or if you wanna see more Black youth working on the podcast, definitely consider donating. Everyone who works with Black Feminist Rants is paid and I can only do that through donations and grants and sponsorships. So. If you are an organization and you want to sponsor, let me know. The information will be in the description. And thank y'all so much and happy Black History Month.